Let's open in prayer. Gracious and merciful Father, we come to you today as people who are able to look back at the word that you have given, able to look and see the ways in which you have dealt with your people in years past. Father, I pray that as we look back at these, uh, our spiritual parents, uh, that you would help us to see you and your work, your faithfulness, your love, your mercy. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see even in ourselves uh, ways in which we should respond rightfully, both to you and to our own lives, to our own sin, to our own weaknesses and failings. Father, I pray that you would grant us by your Holy Spirit uh, ears to hear, and eyes to see, and hearts to believe all that you have for us. Help us to make much of Christ that he would be glorified in and through our time together. Not just in the reading and the preaching of the word, but also, Father, in the conversations that follow. Father, help us to be a community of people who love you above all else because we see the great treasure that you truly are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see and hear passages like less read for us from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, sometimes that doesn't really feel like it fits our daily lives, right? Life is mundane. There's not a whole lot that happens in our day-to-day life. And uh, sometimes it feels like uh, the, the scriptures are distant and they don't relate to us. But I hope that today we will see that the faithfulness that we see God displaying in his word uh, in the passage that we're looking at in 1 Samuel will, will help us to understand that it is the same God that we serve today, the same God that we place our hope in today. The text that we're looking at in 1 Samuel is actually kind of a conclusion of uh, what we started last uh, week, but it's really a c- conclusion of this first part of 1 Samuel. If you turn back, if you have uh, your Bibles open and look, uh, you could briefly glance. Uh, chapter 1, we meet Hannah, uh, who prays that the Lord would give her a son. And her prayers are answered, and she gives her son to serve in the temple at Samuel. And it is in the temple that Samuel first hears the voice of the Lord. Samuel is told that God will bring judgment on the house of Eli because of his son's wickedness and Eli's unwillingness to restrain them in their wickedness. And we read in 1 Samuel 3.19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then in 4.1, we're told that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. It's kind of where we were last week. As we looked at the the text from last week, uh, through the events outlined in chapters 4 through 6, we see that God brought his judgment on Eli and his household by means of military defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Chapter 4 records for us that 34,000 Israelites were killed in battle, including Eli's two wicked sons who had served as priests. But the most shocking news is that the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence and glory, was captured by the Philistines. Israel was in a very sorrowful and defeated state. 
And as we'll see in our text this morning, God had not abandoned his people. It, it felt like it, but God had not abandoned his people. He graciously and mercifully restored them to a right relationship to himself, bringing them peace and restoring their faith and hope in him. And God mercifully provides the same restoration to us today. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey uh, with Christ, God provides you a way to be in right relationship with him. To, he provides a, a way that we can approach him and be mercifully restored. So this is a message, I think, for, for all of us, whether we've been Christians, whether we're not Christians, or we've been Christians uh, for a few days or an entire lifetime. We're going to break up in the text into kind of three sections. In the first, we're going to look at how God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in godly repentance. God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in godly repentance. So after seven months of, with the Philistines, God brought the ark back to the people of Israel. And we read in 7-2, as Les read, that the day that from that day that the ark was lodged at kirith Jiriam, a long time had passed, some 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, depending on the Bible version that you're using, it's going to word that phrase, lamented after the Lord, a little differently. The Hebrew construction is unusual. And as one commentator put it, thus the tentative translations. So the Christian Standard Bible uh, translates it that the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. So we can see the connection between lamenting uh, after the Lord and longing for the Lord. And then the NIV translates it that, that the house of Israel turned back to the Lord. And what we see, I think, is, is out of their grief, they sought the Lord. They longed for him. And then we see then Samuel finally returning back into the narrative. After we get a sense that, that their past has caused them to reflect on everything that's happened and, and in anguish, they, they long for the Lord. And Samuel comes in and through his ministry, he leads the people back to the Lord. He leads them to repentance. So I want to read again, 1 Samuel 7, 3, through 3 and 4. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the astra that, uh, from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And so the people of Israel put away the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. We think, or I should say scholars think that, that what was happening is, is during this time, as the people were longing, Samuel was going throughout the land speaking. They weren't all assembled, right? Israel was large, uh, not, they weren't all meeting in one place. And so, so Samuel was preaching to the people uh, this message of repentance. And the... Uh, uh, within his message of repentance, he first presses them on their sincerity. He said, if you really are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then he says, you'll do, be willing to do the following things. Your repentance will be marked by these three things. And the heart, we need to know that the heart doesn't just refer to their emotions, but really, it refers uh, to their commitments, their decision-making, the, the center of who they are. 
And so if they're sincere, uh, they'll be willing to repent in the following three ways. He says that you'll put away your foreign gods, you'll direct your heart to the Lord, and you will serve him only. So I want us to consider each of these in turn, right? First, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you. So the Ashtoreth, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but that was the Canaanite goddess of fertility. And if we think about ancient Israel and the people at that time and that location, it was an agrarian society. And so growing crops was the way of life. And so to have a goddess of fertility... Well, that's someone you might want to pay attention to. Certainly, uh, Israel's neighbors would have been worshiping or, or sacrificing to her. And Baal was the male storm deity. So you imagine storm, rain, uh, the goddess, fertility, growth of the crops. And so those idols in the ancient agrarian society were, were important. But it wasn't just a problem in the Old Testament. Right? We see in the New Testament, idols are mentioned there as well. 1 John 5.21 tells us, he actually, John concludes his letter. Everything he said by saying these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. But in the New Testament, idols are more than just physical wooden objects. I mean, they were that. But the New Testament writers gives us more nuance and they tells us, they tell us in the New Testament that they're connected to our desires, the things that we talked about in the children's message, that we covet, that which we don't have, that those inordinate desires toward things that, that we ought not, those are idols, or they lead us into idolatry. When we think of it that way, and as I think uh, idols are talked about much today, maybe the categories come up, right? Idols of of money, career, investments, retirements, savings accounts. But David Pallison talks about understanding our idols as uh, slightly differently. Well, it's, it's the same way, but maybe it's a little more helpfully. That idols are the things that take what is true of God and flip it on its head. So we're called to love God. And so the question then, to identify an idol, we ask, I'm called to love God, but when I'm irritable or I'm escapist, when I'm anxious, what am I loving in that moment? Am I loving human approval or comfort? Am I loving being in control or having things my way? We're called to fear God. So what do I fear? Do I fear death or pain, poverty, rejection, Conflict, disappointing other people. I think in our lives, we don't often think about laying down our idols because I I think we don't always see our idols. We don't see the idols in our lives because they're part of who we are. They're kind of part of the society that we're surrounded with. But the same could be true for, you could say the same was true for ancient Israel. But I have a question. When we're made to take refuge, so more examples. We're made to take refuge in God when life gets hard. But the reality is that, that we often take refuge in other things. So what do you take refuge in? Is it your recreation or sports or phones 
right? We're made to love God, but we, we often love other things. We're made to trust God, but we often trust other things. And instead of sacrificing or uh, laying down our lives to a goddess of fertility, I think we often find ourselves laying down our lives for the goddess of success or respect or security or comfort. We give ourselves over to these things and they become more important to us than God. We love them more than we love God. And so the first step in godly repentance is turning away from the idols that we cling to. And so it was important that Samuel went around and pointed out the idols. I think that's the same is true for us. We need to be able to look at our own lives and see that the idols that we're clinging to that's the only way that we are then able to turn from them. When we see them rightly, it can help us to come to know the, the God of mercy. We can come to him and we can ask him for help. So I, I can pray, if I'm anxious, I can pray that God would help me to be less anxious, but, but also to deliver me from being controlled by whether people like me or not. I can pray that God would give me an ability to trust in him so that I'm able to actually love people and not be so worried about how they view me. You see how our idols will control how we'll operate in our everyday lives. And so we're called first to lay down our idols. The second step in godly repentance then is directing our hearts to the Lord. So turn away from idols, lay those down, and then turn or direct your heart to the Lord. The reality is, it's, it is possible to identify an idol and to say, I'm going to turn away from that and then to turn to another idol. To direct our hearts where still they should not be. But Samuel tells them that if they are genuinely sincere in their desire to return to the Lord, that they will fix then their hearts upon the Lord. I think the reality then is that the elements of repentance are not just a once and done thing, but it's an ongoing part of our lives. And so when you're tempted to uh, find security or comfort or hope in an idol instead of God, then you have an opportunity in that moment to first turn away from the idol, but then direct your heart to the Lord, to worship him, to look to him for refuge and hope security, help, and love. So godly repentance is both putting away of the idols, it's directing our hearts to the Lord, but then the third is to serve him only. And this maybe is, uh, touches on maybe more than we think, syncretism. I don't know if you've heard that term before, uh, but he's telling them, don't fall into that. Syncretism is the bringing together or the attempt to bring together different religions or cultures or schools of thought. It's something that was common in the world back then, and it, is, it was forbidden to ancient Israel. So imagine the scenario. Once again, you've planted your crops, and they've just started to sprout, but there's not enough rain. The rain isn't coming. And so, as a faithful Israelite, you, you pray but then your Canaanite neighbor comes around and says, hey, you know what? We're asking everybody in the neighborhood if they'll just come over and uh, pray to the Ashtoreth and, and just, you know, 
take part in that because if everybody in the neighborhood does it, I, I think, you know, we'll probably get rain. No, 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 I, I'm not supposed to do that. Well, but, you know, everybody's doing it. I don't know if this is really how it happened, but we can understand, right? You might protest. They might think, well, what could it hurt? And so maybe you sneak over and, and, and uh, go sacrifice to Ashtoreth. I mean, really, you're just covering your bases, right? And so you, you've prayed to God and you've prayed to Ashtoreth. But the problem is, God says he alone will be worshipped, right? A shared worship is not real worship at all because it fails to recognize who God is. That he is the one, the one true God. Consider the very first of the Ten Commandments in uh, uh, Exodus. It says, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. With syncretism, there's almost this belief that there's competing gods. And that's what the ancient world thought, that there were, there were gods here and there were gods there. And so to cover your bases by worshiping both, not a big deal. But the reality is that there is one God who is over all the other gods. And when we read about God's jealousy, it's not a jealousy uh, for his people out of, that comes from a place of pettiness or from a desire that his people uh, would... Not like, that per, not like that God better than me. It's not that type of a jealousy. It's a jealousy that comes from a desire that his people would worship and delight in him only because he is the only true God, that they would believe the truth. See, he is the only one who is able to be our true refuge, our true comfort, our true hope. And so all these other idols, they might make promises, but they never fully deliver. And so genuine repentance will always move to concrete action. It will always move. So real repentance will always bring with it the actions of, of putting away our idols, of directing our hearts to the Lord and serving him only. Samuel found them in their sorrow, in their remorse, in their lament. And he called them to genuine repentance. Repentance that works from the inside out. It begins with a heartfelt turning to God, an internal commitment to make one's relationship with God a priority over everything else. Or as one commentator wrote, it is not enough to simply regret our sin. One must also repent from our sin. And so the people, they responded the people submitted to the Lord under Samuel's prophetic leadership. The Lord had called, appointed, and equipped Samuel to lead his people back to himself. Right? He called him for this purpose, for this day. 
And then in verse five, we see that Samuel leads the people then to come to corporate worship, to come together. So they come together at Mizpah, and it says that they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. So first question might be, what's going on here? Well, there's no other precedence in Scripture for this, so we don't really know exactly what was going on. It, um, it may have symbolized the washing away of their communal guilt. It's one commentator uh, pointed that out. But it also might point to the fact that it is the Lord and not Baal who is the source of water and fertility. You know, that in conjunction with the fact, right, that they've poured out this water and that they've fasted on this day, right, that they're trusting in the Lord for their provision. And then they confessed. They fasted on that day and they confessed their sin before the Lord, that we have sinned against the Lord. What they did was they acknowledged that their sin was wrong and it was displeasing to God. Right? They, they, it wasn't just a mistake, it wasn't just an inconvenience, but that it was against the Lord himself. And so even as we think about our own idolatry and our own hearts and our own minds, what we turn to for comfort and hope, we need to realize that it is sin against the Lord. And I, I really have not ever met a person who didn't fall into some type of idolatry and so, but we should be willing uh, to confess that before the Lord, to acknowledge it and to turn away from that, to turn to him and to serve the Lord only. We give ourselves to idols in the hopes that we will find a better life in those idols, a better life than our sovereign God has given us. But ultimately, that's a lie. And in the end, the, the idols only leave us empty and separated from God. And, and so, in their emptiness, they turned uh, toward God. And as believers, we need to do the same thing. We need to be able to be willing to repent of those idols in our lives. Well, God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in repentance, godly repentance. Secondarily, God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in humble dependence. So, First is repentance and now dependence. So we have to ask, was Israel genuine in their repentance? Were they genuinely returning to the Lord? And, and so it didn't take us very long in the narrative to find out whether or not that was true. So uh, we mentioned, I mentioned how the Philistines last week, how they uh, were the enemies of God's people throughout the book of 1 Samuel. And if we go back to Judges chapter 13, verse 1, we learn that the people of Israel had done evil in God's sight, and so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Right? So that's, that's older than a lot of you here. Not all of us, right? Many of us are older than that, but uh, so for 40 years, the Philistines had been oppressing uh, the Israelites. After the military defeat in 1 Samuel 4, it probably looked pretty suspicious to the Philistines to see all these Israelites coming together up on Mizpah. Now, the word Mizpah means a watchtower, and so it was probably a hill. And so the Philistines, as they're kind of watching from a distance, 
wait a minute, what's going on? All these Israelites are coming to assemble. And so we read in 7-7 in, uh, seven, seven that, First uh, Samuel again, that now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, and the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So we see Israel in the same circumstance that they had been in chapter 4. And so, but we ask, what will they do now? Would they flee in every direction as they'd done on the battlefield? In their time of fear and stress, that's what we do, I mean, don't we? We revert back to uh, bad habits, uh, the very worst of our own habits. Uh, some of us lash out in anger. Some of us eat more than we should. Some of us shut down. Some of us just tune everything out. But this time, in this moment, Israel doesn't flee. They don't run away. They don't turn back to their idols. They see their need for God and for God's help. And so they ask Samuel to pray. In fact, verse 8, it says that the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to pray for us, to cry out for us, to the Lord for our God, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Israel was afraid. And right after 40 years of oppression, they had reason to be afraid. After the, the military de uh, defeat, after stealing the ark, they had reason to be afraid. But instead of responding in arrogance or anger, chapter 4, shutting down, they now have turned to God in genuine, if not timid, faith in God's ability to save them. Samuel had told them that if they would repent and turn away from their idols and turn toward God, that God would deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. But in that moment, we get the sense that they understood that they were in no position to demand anything from God. Yes, that they had repented. Yes, that they had, uh, they had uh, turned toward God. But I think there was also a realization that at that moment, maybe they were looking back at their lives, there was a realization right, that they had lived for so many years in disobedience and unbelief. They had, in that moment, maybe they thought about how they had turned uh, to idols for rescue. How they had treated God and his holy things as if they were just tools to be used to get exactly what they wanted. Doesn't really tell us any of that underneath other than the fact that they, they didn't even pray themselves. They asked Samuel to pray for them. But I want to ask, have you ever looked at your life like that before? Looked back at your life thought about your life before Christ, maybe even your life, including your walk with Christ, your disobedience, your unbelief, right? And the times that you've turned to idolatrous pursuits for rescue and relief. Maybe you can think back to something that happened this morning or this week or this month. So how do you respond during those moments of quiet contemplation? Some some of you, some of me, I mean, I can relate. I, I get riddled with guilt when I think about the ways that I've not trusted God. But maybe you're the type of person, you just brush those thoughts aside. Those moments can be overwhelming. But those moments ought to be humbling, and they ought to, in us, 
turn our focus back to Christ, away from those idols. In those moments, our minds should go to, I would encourage your mind to go to the cross, to remember the cost. What we see then is they ask Samuel to pray for them. We see then in verse 9 that so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered him. Right, that whole burnt offering, what, that, was, that was a sacrifice of atonement. It was meant to pay for the sins of the people. The image is that the sins of the people were placed on that lamb and the lamb was then killed in their place. So if you ever find yourself overwhelmed by your past sins or feel like you could I mean, not even come yourself to God in prayer, you need to remember that it isn't a person's sinless perfection that gets them an audience before the throne of God. But it's the costly blood of Christ, the lamb who was killed in your place. That's what brings us access before the throne of God that we might pray to him. Right? We come to God not because we have everything all together, but we humbly come to God because we know that we desperately need him. We desperately need his help. We humbly come to God in prayer because Christ, the innocent lamb of God, humbled himself and died for our sins that we might be able to come before him. And so the text then tells us that Samuel made that offering for the people. He prayed and the Lord heard And then the text says that actually it was as he was making the sacrifice of the burnt offering that the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. I mean, talk about a real test of worship, right? Are you going to keep your eyes on God when your enemies are literally coming up the hill to kill you? But the text tells us that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day and the Philistines threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Samuel had called them into repentance and led them to worship in humble dependence and God mercifully restored them. God forgave their sins, heard their prayers, and the Lord answered. I think as we think about this section of the text, humble dependence really, I think, lives in, lives, is lived out in our lives in our life of prayer. Godly repentance of seeing ourselves and turning away from our sins, turning toward God, right? That's an active moment by moment. But that humble dependence is in the moment of temptation, in the moment of our lives, in our weakness of turning toward God, the one who can save us, the one who can deliver us. And so God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in humble dependence. And then the third point uh, I think that we see coming out of the text is that God mercifully restores sinners who come to him in hopeful remembrance. In hopeful remembrance. God had graciously delivered Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but he did not want the people to forget. Verse 12 says that Samuel took a stone and set it uh, between Mizpah and Shen, and called it Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And you probably have a note in your uh, Bible at the bottom of the page that will tell you that the word 
Uh, Ebenezer literally means stone of help. It's also called a stone of remembrance. And there are other examples uh, in the Old Testament where God's people set up stones to remind themselves of, uh, and their uh, future generations of what had happened in that place. But I think Samuel's words are interesting because he says, he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, for up till now the Lord has helped us. I mean, at first glance you might think, well, up to now God's helped us, but we've had to take the rest from here. I don't think that's the, the point. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, we see that, that the people of God were encamped where? At Ebenezer. They were encamped at Ebenezer at the first battle against the Philistines. That first battle, which was, uh, led to the second battle, which led to the ark being taken away, which led to, to the despair that caused the people of God to long for the Lord. That Ebenezer and this stone of help, there are like bookends in Israel's uh, chapter of Israel's history. This, each, they fit on each side. And so these two encounters, I think, we're supposed to see them to be in relation to one another. But we're also meant to see the totally different uh, outcomes, vividly, vividly illustrated. Right? It, it illustrated the importance of Israel's relationship to God. That even an apostate people could find the Lord again if they truly came to him in repentance and faith. We have short memories as people. It's easy for us to forget. We've, I mean, I forgot what I ate for breakfast yesterday. But we forget even much more important things than that. Last year, our family visited Washington, D.C. And now that is a city that is filled with memorials filled with things to help you try and remember. And so we visited the Lincoln Memorial, the Martin Luther King Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, the World War II. I mean, it was, it was a lot of memorials. In fact, it was one evening that we were with Whitney's brother and, and we walked through a series of memorials. And it's striking how the past became so much in the present as we looked upon those memorials. And the events that had taken place so long ago we're able to see, wow, we're able to feel the weight of them as we stood in the presence of these memorials. But there's a difference between what we find in Washington, D.C. and what uh, Samuel set up here. Instead of recalling the names of the dead, as we see on memorials like the Vietnam Memorial, Samuel's Ebenezer recalled the name of the living God. Right, the, the helper of his people. She said, up to now, God has been our help. He is faithful. He is powerful. He is loving. He is merciful. He is present. He's with us. Unlike other memorials, the Ebenezer Stone acknowledged God's mighty saving works, and they pointed to a turning, a turning point in the lives of the worshipers, in the lives of the people of Israel. As one author pointed out, it symbolized a new act on God's part, which meant that the worshiper would never be the same again. It was like a, a permanent reminder that in this place, 
At this point, God acted in such a way that the future has new prospects. And I, I think that's the kind of remembering, hopeful remembering that God calls us to. The author goes on to, to tell like what became of that battle or what became of life, what was changed. Well, the author tells us that it marked the end of that 40 years of Philistine oppression. Right? Cities were restored that had once been captured by the Philistines. There was peace with, uh, well, at least a kind of peace with the Philistines, at least as long as Samuel lived. But there was also peace with Israel's Canaanite neighbors, the Amorites. And that Ebenezer stone, it would, it would serve the Israelites by reminding them that God had called them out of idolatrous worship. That he had forgiven their sins and received them back into right fellowship. He had protected them. He'd fought their battle and he'd brought them peace. And the peace that they were experiencing at that time, in their lifetime, was not theirs by rights, but it was given to them by the mercy of God. God encourages us and restores us as we participate, as we think about, as we have that hopeful uh, remembrance of the Ebenezers in our own lives. So I ask, what are your Ebenezers? What are the moments that are turning points where God acted and changed you and the direction of your life? I think we sometimes get confused with the difference between a hopeful remembrance, an Ebenezer, and reminiscence. Right? A reminiscence is something that we look back longingly on, how things used to be, how things were so much better before. See, that type of a, a remembering, it leaves us with a longing for something that was lost. Often it leaves us with discontentment but that reminiscence, right, as we find ourselves in that reminiscence, it ought to, like it did with Israel in the beginning of this chapter, lead us to seek the Lord and to remember the Ebenezers and to trust in him for the future. Those long, uh, longings should lead us to long for God. Right? Those moments of lament in our lives as we think back to how things might have been, as we mourn over how things are, should lead us to long for God. We shouldn't simply look back at the good old days and try and rebuild them. We should trust in the Lord and his direction and for where he would take us. It's in hope that we look at what God has done and humbly anticipate how he will lead us in the next chapter of our lives. We need to lay aside any arrogance that would say we know what's best and humbly fall before the Lord and follow his lead. See, as we look at these chapters, really from four through the end of seven, what we looked at today, we see that for the people of Israel, they, they thought that the defeat of God, which was the taking of the ark, was going to be the end. The end of their existence, maybe the end of, of God himself. I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but, but it certainly was a bad end in their mind. But in reality, we see that it was God's means 
of attaining victory, of, of attaining his people back, is bringing not just them physically back, but bringing their hearts back to worship. God moved them from tyranny and idol worship to faithfulness and peace. And isn't that the same thing that God did in sending his son? At the moment which would seem the darkest hour of his death brought forth the greatest peace and victory that we could ever hope for. Where our own hearts are changed because of what he has done. See, the Lord is the one who fights the battles. He just calls us to respond in worship. And God mercifully restores sinners like you and me when we are willing to repent of worshiping other things and turn toward him, when we're willing to humbly come before him and depend on him for the present and the future, and we're willing to have hopeful remembrance that would cause us to trust in the future that he has for us. Let us pray together. Father, our great desire is that Christ would be glorified and magnified. We want to be a people uh, who love you and who treasure you, who trust you and worship you. But we are a people who are prone to wander, prone to leave you, the God that we say that we love. So Father, I pray that you would work in our lives to beckon us back to yourself And Father, that you would be pleased to receive us back, to to know your mercy. Father, we thank you for the cross and the reconciliation that Christ has bought through that. Let that be our treasure. Help that to be our Ebenezer, Father. And even as we go from here, I pray that conversations over lunch and over this next week would be ones of celebrating, Father, what you have done in our lives. Build our faith through that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.